Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of I Forgot to Push This Button Here That Makes the Music Fade Out So That I Can Actually Talk. Boy, am I just going to mess this show up today. I, uh, in case you guys didn't know, I'm I'm fairly sick. Uh, I don't know what happened. I got into something, but uh, I am soldiering through it with Devin here, who's hopefully going to pick up the slack for me today hopefully. on episode 56, man. We've been going a long time. Don't I always pick up the slack, though? 56 episodes. You got to think that uh, I've been doing a pretty good job of picking up your slack. Yeah, this guy's, this guy's <laughs> hardcore, man. He's been sticking with it, making sure to update the show notes that I kind of lazily put together this round. But first, Devin, before we get started, man, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been doing, um, I've been a part of a small skeleton crew for doing some UFC interviews and stuff like that for uh, uh, Access TV, doing audio and stuff like that for them, which has been me working a lot of weekends, which is why the show schedule has been a bit crazy lately, so I apologize for that, but uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We've been shooting with the C300 and doing some of the slow-mo with that and everything else, and I'm enjoying that camera more than DJ ever could because <laughs> DJ didn't like the C300. So, uh, but other than that, it's been it's it's just been lots of editing after that part for uh, a few you know more music artists in Chicagoland and stuff like that. But uh, DJ, how have things been with you and uh, you know being sick and coughing oh, all over the place? Man, uh, being sick is awesome. I love being sick, but <laughs> I have been editing extremely heavily for the last uh, well, actually last three months. I've been doing pretty much nothing but editing. And uh, we're finally wrapping up. I finished 27 scenes in a marathon editing session over the last three days. Uh, that included green screen and a bunch of special and practical effects stuff that we had to get sort of... Well, we had to go out to a set and shoot uh, some filler and put that in there. But anyway, what I wanted to discuss, actually, since you're talking about the UFC fights, we were sure. t- kind of talking about this before the show. When you film something like that, you shoot, what, two days probably? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how much goes into it because uh, part of it is a lot of that stuff depends on the producer you're with. Um, uh, some producers who will fully take charge of the editing process, they'll know exactly what they want. And other times you've got producers, uh, just it has to do with how they're set up, producers that will go through and um, uh, they'll just send it off to an editor and another like showrunner that manages how you put all that stuff together. So all in all, we'll probably capture, you know, something like a 20-minute interview that will all probably be chopped down to two minutes, uh, which will be, you know, usually like a promo before the fight or during the fight, you know, or something like that. And uh, it's um, and then on top of that, you know, we grab as much B-roll as we can, stuff that's interesting. We try to, you know, and of course, you're always trying to tell a story with these kind of things. So, uh, you know, if any family they've got, if they like riding their bike or they've got a motorcycle or something like that, a bunch of stuff like that. So it really depends on uh, what kind of produce, producer you got. You've also got some producers, too, who will go out and want you to shoot everything, even though you know what you're shooting will never make it to air because either uh, it has nothing to do with the story or because it's uh, it's just, you know, the lighting isn't great and it's not a great shot in general and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of depends on who's running uh, the operation. But um in general, it's it's it is it's you spend two days, you know, you sleep in a hotel. Usually, though, they'll keep you in a decent hotel, and uh, you know, just to make maybe two or three minutes worth of content, and you'll probably be uh, lately we've been pulling maybe like eight to ten hour days of running around shooting. Most of it is getting from place to place to get all the interesting shots and everything else around there. But uh, but yeah, it's it's a lot of work for very little content. But that's kind of broadcast because they want the best of the best cut. So you got to go out and get everything. Now, I was watching an interview with the uh, guys that do uh, Drunk History, and that was a really interesting insight into that sort of production. Those guys actually do uh, two days' worth of shooting and, you know, eight to ten hours of drinking to get the recordings done and to generate (laughs) a whole, like, four to five minutes of content. And at first I was like, when I listened to the interview, I thought, oh, man, that's ridiculous. You know, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about my own production schedule, and I'm like, wait a minute. I spend an entire day, and if I'm lucky, I get like three, maybe four scenes shot, you know, and mm-hmm. and maybe I have to go go back and do some reshoots because you know we missed this or we missed that or we needed to get a close up of something that we didn't get, and really, I don't know what it is about film production, but it is not nearly as productive as you think it should be. <laughs> uh, maybe it's just because of the level I operate at, and maybe you know, running around doing interviews or that sort of thing. When I do a corporate video, it seems like you go out. 
you shoot the the interview or what have you, and you usually get like 15 or 20 minutes worth of content that you're delivering, or 10 minutes at least, mm-hmm. and that takes you, you know, two or three hours. But when you're actually trying to tell some sort of story or gather something, it turns into this ordeal where you're always shooting a bunch <laughs> of stuff, and then there's always somebody that's like, hey, what if we got this shot? What if we got this shot? And you're going yeah. on and on, shooting more a- and more absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. And and I think that's uh, that's important too. A lot of people to consider who are more interested in narrative filmmaking and whatnot is that uh, there's you know analysts who are probably way smarter than me in the film industry. There's a reason why a lot of low budget and no budget films hire huge crews, and that's so that they can get all the shooting done within you know maybe two months or maybe like even five weeks or four weeks because. Uh, you know, every week you rent the gear that costs more money. Every week you pay your actors that costs more money. So there's there's a give and take of, well, if I spend more money getting a bigger crew, I can spend less money in these other areas because we can produce stuff faster. And so, and that's also why pre-production is so important and you should spend a ton of time on pre-production because if you can make a lot of decisions in pre-production, you know exactly what you need uh, it, when you get on the spot, you know, not necessarily that you need to edit it, but, you know, storyboards for complicated scenes and stuff like that can go a long way to make sure your shot list is exactly what you need and maybe a few safeties as opposed to if you're just like, oh, we're going to shoot the Y, now we're going to shoot the two OTSs and everything else to have this conversation in a room, you end up with a lot of options in post, which is how some people like to shoot, uh, but you also end up taking a lot of time on set getting stuff done. So it's always something to consider, especially if you're, uh, you're a skeleton crew and you maybe only got a few of your friends, is uh, you know thinking ahead of time, doing all the planning to make sure you're going after exactly what you need and not wasting a bunch of time getting a bunch of stuff that'll just edit, you know, out of the whole production. Yeah, storyboards, man. I've worked on shoots without storyboards and shoots with, and uh, it is definitely <laughs> worth it to spend the money on a storyboard artist, even if it's you know just rough sketches to get things sort of sorted out. You can really eliminate a lot of extra shooting just by following a storyboard shot for shot with a a good crew. You're like, here, here's what we need to get, and we get everything, and you're done, and you can completely get out of there, as opposed to sort of this impromptu where someone's like, what if we do this? And you're like, yeah, that seems like a good idea, and then you get to post, and you realize, wait a minute, that was dumb. Now, we've dove off the cliff already, <laughs> and we haven't even started the show. Yep. I think, Devin, We're, it's, it's time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Oh, Devin's doing a wonderful job of filling in for me today, man. My glasses are fogging up as I'm like sweating and snotting at the same time. It's disgusting. Now, the first thing I want to talk about here, and actually, this is kind of news for everybody. The GH4 in the gray market, and I don't know if this is just an economic thing that's going on because uh, of the change in currencies or what, but it's come down to $1,099 for a GH4 body on the gray market on eBay, and that's free Mm -hmm. shipping and everything. And with a combo of the 12 to 35 millimeter f2.8, that's down to 16.99. I've got some links in the show notes for that, but that's basically the GH4 plus a very decent uh, image stabilized lens uh, for the price that the GH4 was originally. Devin, what do you think, man? Is it worth it to go gray market for these great prices on the GH4? Uh, I, I think absolutely. I mean. Um... I guess you know in general, uh, you know eBay and stuff like that. It's always a little risky, depending on the sellers and stuff. But uh, you know eBay, even if you're getting shipped across seas and stuff like that, and keep in mind this is only coming from uh, New Jersey, so it's not exactly like it's being. It's well, they say they're coming from New Jersey, but (laughs) a lot of these are like drop shipped. So what happens on on many of these is actually they have a port of call, and so whoever is selling them from the other country ships them to a port of call, and then the the person that works at the distributor picks that up and then ships it to you. And by doing that, they can kind of avoid some of the exchange rate costs and so on. Uh, This isn't just a seller, and I've got a link, or, man, I'm failing at this horribly today. Whoa. Okay, I'm going to show my screen here. You can see that this isn't just somebody that uh, sells one or two cameras and disappears. These guys have uh, 12,000 plus positive ratings. Uh, if you've ever bought one of these cameras before from eBay, what you end up with is usually, uh, basically the same camera. It's just that you have to sign for your order when it gets there. And this is usually to prevent Mm -hmm. them from being ripped off in some sort of eBay scam or what have you. So you do have to deal with a little bit of hassle and you do have to be home to receive the camera, but man, a GH4 body, uh, even at current prices on Amazon, that's like 1400 bucks. So you're saving 
close to like seven or eight hundred dollars on this combo kit here. Right. It's it's definitely to me it'd be worth it because it's still one of the best four K packages that you can grab. Um, and even with a lens too, which is a great starting lens uh, if you have the money for it. Uh, it, it's a great, you know, 4K. It may not do amazing low light. You know, there's better options out there for low light. But all things considered, a tiny, cheap package that does great 4K like this, um, it doesn't get better than this. Yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm not sure why the prices are this way, but it's actually even cheaper than a GX8, which is supposed to be the little brother to the GH4. And the GX8, although just recently announced, is still kind of missing some of the features that the GH4 has with it. So uh, really interesting. I wonder what's going to happen next. If it, This may be signaling a GH5 coming at NAB this coming year. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to start that rumor right now. <laughs> now, next thing that's seen a price drop and sort of some competition is actually the GoPro. Uh, here we have the GoPro Hero Plus. This was just announced, I believe, Monday. And this guy here, it looks like it's a response to GoPro's competition. These uh, sort of generic-looking GoPros from China. Uh, this is the YI I've got right here. And that's mm-hmm. about 80 bucks, 70 bucks, depending on where you shop. Now, in the past, uh, you had some entry-level prices, but they were still in the 150 160 range. Now, the lowest-level hero is down to what, Devin? 139 uh, yeah, it's uh, or I think one twenty nine. I think one twenty nine to one thirty. And then the next up, now they've added the Hero Plus to this, and that's going to be a price tag of one ninety nine. Now, what they've also done, which is sort of frustrating, is they've actually dropped the price of the session down a hundred dollars. And the session has only been out yeah. for like two or three months. That's a yeah. pretty significant price drop for well, such a short it, amount of time. It's 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 such a risky move because. Um, I mean, the price drop is probably because they aren't moving maybe as many units as they want. And you're right, it could be a response to some of these cheaper cameras that are coming out that are producing better quality than their extremely expensive camera. Uh, I think part of it goes to say, like we've said before, that the session having, uh, you know, it being waterproof without a case and having, you know, some built-in Wi-Fi or whatever options or being simpler to use aren't necessarily groundbreaking features that make people want to spend all that money. Uh, but it also kind of alienates some of your customers who maybe recently bought this just a month ago, and now it's a hundred dollars cheaper. And that's that always, you know, th- it's hard for that to sit well. Uh, one thing I've liked is um, Panasonic does drop their prices, uh, but they do it pretty steadily uh, with their their GH series, the GH three and the GH four, just consistently after a few months. Hey, here's a hundred off. After a couple more months, hey, here's a hundred off. Uh, and it just it, it did it so steadily that I feel like they're really smart about it. Unlike maybe Canon, who you know do a huge price drop on something like a C three hundred, you know, which I, I actually know somebody who just bought it, and then a month later, that's when they did the huge price drop on the first C three hundred and oh, they talked about the Mark II and everything. Yeah, and that doesn't that makes it hard to keep your customers around uh, when you devalue their products that quickly. So. Uh, I think, yeah, I think Hero's concerned, but I don't think, from what I've heard, a few rumors and stuff like that, I think Hero uh, won't have too much reason to be concerned for much longer. Part of the reason why you're seeing such great performance out of these knockoffs is because a lot of the time they're actually using, uh, you know, the same sensor technology. Uh, You know, they might throw in different features or different software for denoising and stuff like that, but... Uh, they're all kind of sharing the same sensor, and I've heard several rumors that the Hero is working on trying to actually developing their own sensor, probably in a partnership or something like that with Sony, but they're trying to work on their own technology rather than what the Chinese companies are doing, which is the same thing that GoPro's been doing, which is throw a sensor in there, wrap software around it. I mean, you still need R&D for firmware and for apps and features and everything else, but... It's really kind of like a package deal, and then you come up with a battery, and you stick it all together, and you power, and you go, okay, we have a camera. And all these other companies are creating knockoffs because they're like, yeah, that's not terribly hard. You know, we, we've been doing that too. <laughs> but I think Hero has been slowly working up, or GoPro rather, has been slowly working up to produce their own sensor so they can really say, this is our own camera, and you won't get quality or features like this out of anyone else because we've built it from the ground up. They haven't done that yet, but I think in the next version, when we're looking at what might be called a Hero 5, that's when they'll actually be using their own sensor. So 
it'll be exciting to see that if they come out that soon. I wonder if they'll actually get to it in time, though. Uh, now we have True. a bunch of competition <laughs> that's using similar tech, and and Devin's absolutely right. Like if you want to see what's going to happen in the next hero in the past uh, base or the next GoPro, you would go. To, and I used to know the company's name off the top of my head. I don't now. They create an entire system on a chip with a board, with an image sensor, and it's a Sony sensor. They put it all together, and then they slap a lens in front of it, and then that's basically the guts of a mm-hmm. Hero 4, Hero 3, and it's been like that consistently. If they continue to work on this, like the session is basically just an evolution of that process. They haven't really changed anything. They've just changed the form factor. If they get to it by next year sometime, well, what do we have right now? We have stuff like the Olympus Air. We have the uh, E1 camera that I have on its way to my house right now, which I'm actually excited about. Uh, These are cameras that are in the same price range as a Hero 4 Black Edition, but now they have interchangeable lenses. So now you have the option to go with whatever you want. And... It's a bigger sensor, so better low-light performance, better control. You know, in the past, what's the bane of many Hero 4 Black Edition users? It's the fact that you can't change any of the settings. It's all sort of on autopilot. I mean, they have Pro Tunes, but that's not a solution. If I want to change my ISO settings or I want to change my shutter speed or, or whatever, and it's pretty frustrating when you have a camera that sort of has stuff that's on autopilot and there's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely. In a few years, you know, I mean, next year maybe, like, what are we going to see if these cameras are already hitting the market from, you know, sort of independent developers, you know, pretty soon, uh, other companies are going to actually hit this hard. And Sony's been uh, basically nailing down their sensor tech and getting their sensors into everything. Now, what would stop them from coming out with a GoPro-type competitor? I mean, I know in the past they've had one, but it's sort of been uh, lackluster, they could easily sure. put something nicer into their camera and then well, compete with GoPro. It, I think for a long time, too, GoPro has had the lead on this because while we do kind of knock off and say, oh, it's a sensor, and they kind of just put a battery onto it and call it a day, uh, there's still a lot of R&D to make it small, to make the battery life good, to make sure the camera software is stable and everything else. It's just that all the other competition that's doing this, which are usually like you know no-name brands that we've been talking about, they... Um, the, the technology's advanced so far that for for them to develop features like Bluetooth and remote viewing is almost trivial uh, because of, you know, how much people have already spent time and effort developing these things. Um, you know, it's kind of like when, uh, you know, PHP websites or something like that first came out, it was a really big deal to code and engineer one. And now that PHP has been out for so long... Uh, which is a website code kind of a thing. Uh, no one really codes it anymore. You just grab somebody else's library who's done a way better job than you ever could, and you use their libraries in order to make your own content. And so uh, it's the same thing with Arduinos and all this stuff for uh, small electronics that these other camera companies are like, well, adding you know Wi-Fi and stuff like that is really easy. And to make it work well and have it pretty stable, uh, that's becoming a trivial matter. And so now GoPro is running out of things that are like, you know, we're the best, except they, I mean, they still have the best image quality, but you're paying so much for it. And it's almost starting to reach that point. Like a lot of cameras are where it's like, uh, you know, I don't mind necessarily not having the best if it means I could have a couple of cameras as opposed to just one, uh, which has always been a thing with DSLR versus, you know, bigger cameras like reds and stuff like that. And, you know, the whole GH2 versus the area Alexa argument and all that kind of stuff. So it just, it kind of comes back to that. So what GoPro does next, it'll be really interesting, and I really hope that they come out with something really fantastic that shows re-innovation and they blow away the competition again, but they might not. They might just be like, hey, we'll do 60 at 4K, which then you're <laughs> like, oh, all right, <laughs> which not that that wouldn't be amazing. Not that I would love 60 at 4K and probably end up buying that camera. We just know that it's like, well, eventually your competition is probably going to start catching up and they'll give us a 4K camera for maybe $150 that almost looks as good as your 4K camera. So it's just one of those things that I'm hoping down the, you know, the next iteration is going to be like a new sensor and probably some really cool tech to go with it that really makes us excited again to use uh, GoPros. But 
Otherwise, if all, if you need a cheap GoPro camera, there's some great options out there. So now uh, keep that in mind. I want to throw this against you here. The, I know it's not really in the show notes, but uh, you know the new iPhone 6s has 4K shooting capabilities, and this has yes, been available yes in several of Samsung's line of phones. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this going to cut into the market? Do you think of like a Hero 4 Black Edition and in general like 4K handheld shooting? Because you know wide angle. Mm-hmm phone that you already have uh, a device that you already paid four or five hundred bucks for three or four hundred depending on your contract or what have you and now like you know maybe you just use that instead of using a gopro you know for the most part i'd say no uh i don't think that that those market shares necessarily uh overlap as much as uh one one could think because gopro has always been sold as an action camera a lifestyle brand in the water yeah, well, and it's it's like put it on your surfboard. It's like take me out, go on adventures with me, you know, whatever. I know that's what you and, think, though, but we've talked about this before. How many people actually do that? In reality, no, yeah, you go a- out to absolutely. buy a GoPro because you think you're going to do, you know, you're going to be free diving <laughs> off of a cliff and like parachuting in two days, sure. and, you know, and pretty yeah. soon you're going to be scuba diving, diving with sharks or you know whatever wacky thing you think you're going to do, and you get it and you realize, wait a minute. I'm still the regular person that does the regular stuff every day, like, A, hangs out with my kids, B, you know, walks I, around my house. See, I don't know, because for me, the GoPro, I've never considered the GoPro, like, a better video option than my cell phone. I know it, it probably is in a lot of respects and has been for the past couple of years, but I've never thought of it that way. I've always thought, well, I could use my camera phone, uh, my smartphone for doing it, and I even have a Samsung phone that shoots 4K, but... It's one of those where I use the GoPro because I want to use a dedicated camera. The same reason why somebody would use a point-and-shoot instead of their cell phone. They're like, I use my cell phone to make calls. I don't want to run out of battery before the end of the day. It's one of those that it's great to have if I have nothing else. I can pull out my phone and get something really quick. Uh, But if I'm actually setting out to go record video, I want a dedicated device for that. Um, you make a good point. Uh, I think that a lot of people are really wowed by the 4K out of the iPhone. And you're right. It it may stop them from getting a small portable video camera. But I don't think that's the majority of GoPro's market share. I think a lot of what GoPro has to offer is specifically for things like waterproofing. Because just about every GoPro video I see somehow needs waterproofing or protection. And usually people are hanging it on the outside of things. Like when I see a GoPro in use, you're right. There are people who just buy the GoPro and then don't do much with it. Um, But I've also seen people too who even if they don't, you know, they may not be some, like you were saying, skydivers and stuff like that. Um, I bought a used GoPro off of eBay uh, that included a memory card and the person didn't wipe the memory card before they gave it to me. And all, all that was on it, though, was footage of a, a guy longboarding, you know, around his neighborhood, which isn't like, you know, the crazy GoPro videos <laughs> where they're going 80 miles an hour on some, you know, curvy road. He's just riding around the neighborhood. Yeah, that's and the one I was actually going to throw out there. I see skateboarders and, and skateboarding kids all the time with like a selfie stick. And they're, you know, they're, right. they're not even doing anything, you know, remotely <laughs> entertaining. They're just skateboarding around the neighborhood with a selfie stick or, you know, BMXers sure. are are jumping a little ways into the air with their, you know, camera attached to their, their right, handlebars. Right. But here's and, like, the thing. Them. Here's the thing. If I, I don't know if you've done any skateboarding. I, I used to skateboard when I was younger and you, you get trashed a lot. And for me to take this expensive like phone and try to like record videos where I know I'm doing something where I might fall and stuff gets thrown and stuff like that, considering how delicate we treat our smartphones because of how easily they shatter. I, I don't think that anyone's going to be like, well, $40 I shoot 4K rubber with my bumper case, <laughs> right? No, dude, because asphalt finds a way to get past the case and puncture the screen. I've seen it happen so many times. It's true. But I'm just saying that also, too, you don't get the mounting options with the iPhone. And well, definitely not secure mounting options. It's like, let me try to hold onto the iPhone really tight and then give you a, you know, a quarter, uh, a one fourth thread. Uh, GoPro, on the other hand, like when I got that footage from that random eBayer, uh, you know, he had it mounted on his helmet. That's not something that you can do. And I think GoPro's known that. They're like, we need to make sure we can mount on anything at any time very easily because that's important, just as important as it is as making a camera that is virtually indestructible as opposed to your iPhone, where if you drop it while you're drinking coffee, it's destroyed. So I think that it's, I just don't think there's that much overlap. I think you're right. The occasional person who's like, I want a cool video camera will go, okay, I don't need that video camera. I got my iPhone for it. But other people who, even if all they do is skateboard around their neighborhood and they want to take videos of it, I doubt they're going to be using the iPhone. 
if they are, I guess they better have some warranty on it because uh, I've seen people drop a lot of stuff. Well, the new Apple model is actually to include the Apple Care plan. So I suppose, you know, in a way, you have basically waterproofed your iPhone Yeah, for the success. price of a GoPro, you can <laughs> get an Apple Care plan. Uh, now, moving right, on down the line uh, yeah. to things that are priceless and you don't want to lose here. Um, I've actually got this one thrown in, and this is kind of based on a news article that was up on Petapixel. Uh, this photographer uh, basically had 10 years of her life stored on mobile hard drives, and not just regular mobile hard drives. We're talking like the the sort of like cheesy USB-powered units that you just stack on top of each other. 10 years of you know documenting China, going all over the world, doing all these things. And she was shooting, wow. you know, saving all of her photos in Lightroom on a drive like this, which is, uh, it's a little ridiculous. And somebody broke into her house and stole 21 hard drives, which is basically her life's work. And she had it backed up to, guess what, nothing. Nothing at all. Your life's that's work. terrible. Backed up to nothing. Now, that's, the, that's a crappy, that's a crappy situation all around. And it's, uh, it's, I, I feel for her. I've been in that situation. I've lost hard drives. Um... But as I'm sure you do, DJ, I definitely take advantage of the fact that cloud services are really cheap. They're really uh, friggin' cheap these days, and it's something that uh, I think everyone should consider, especially for photos. Photos are small. I mean, I do a backup service where I've got terabytes of current project files backed up uh, just in case the house burns down. Because uh, after all, if, especially if you've got paying clients, if you lose that footage... Uh, you basically lost that client because very few clients will tolerate you having to come back and do a reshoot because of some kind of data failure. So, uh, and photos though are cheap and they're several free services. Me, my personal photos, because I don't care about the quality, I actually use the Google Photos. Uh, they do limit you to 16 uh, megapixels, but I, I love the Google environment. I love that my phone automatically ships them off and they get backed up and they're available on all my devices. Um, and they're openable on the web. I can attach them easily as like an email attachment or something like that and send them to other people for my personal stuff. Uh, if I was backing up photos for a client, then I'd probably look at several of the other services. You know, you got Flickr, which is an oldie but a goodie. Uh, I think, DJ, you actually use Amazon probably. Amazon. Yeah, Prime. let me run down a couple that I, I actually use. I back mine up to multiple services because I just like to <laughs> beat my bandwidth Because you're overprotective. Death. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so one of the things about uh, Google Photos is actually uh, the assistant feature is amazing. If you've never oh, yeah. used that, like the face detection, the location detection, Being all the other information. search. Yeah, you could say search for a car, and it'll show you all your photos that have a car in it. You don't have to tag your photos; it's amazing. It does bring my dogs up as cats, though. Just uh, <laughs> just putting that out there. That's it's a little not weird. Perfect, but my but dogs it's a are start in amazing direction. Yeah, but now the other thing that uh, a lot of people don't know about is that Google Photos actually will back up your video files as well. Now you are uploading these to Google, so you know whatever your upload bandwidth is is what you're limited to, and if you have terabytes and terabytes worth of footage. Probably not the most practical way to go unless you have symmetrical, you know, gigabit uh, fiber to your house or something like that. But that is an option if you have smaller projects and you need to back them up. The other thing it does is it creates like little vignette videos for you. And I've actually given these to clients as, uh, hey, look what I made for you. And I didn't say anything about where they came from. But like Google found my footage on my footage drive and like grabbed <laughs> some of it and put together this cute little like add music here, dancey mm -hmm. sort of sounding thing with like different shots of the behind the scenes and everything else mixed together. And it turned out so well that I was like, here you go, guys. And they're like, oh, that's so nice. We didn't even add that into the contract. That's great that you did that for us. And it like, it made me look like I was doing the extra. Sure, yeah. You know, <laughs> but using the other free services. The other thing is uh, Amazon, if you play, pay for a Prime account, Amazon will give you unlimited photo backups and there's no limit on size and raw files are welcome so yeah you know i don't know very many people now that don't have a prime subscription i mean i'm guessing Devin, you have a prime subscription i have a prime yeah, of subscription. Course. my wife gets one for free because she's a student uh dozens of people i know have a prime subscription and while it's not as slick of an interface as google photos it is a very good way to back your stuff up. Uh, you can just grab your folders, mm -hmm. back them up, and you have everything, and I'm smacking stuff in my room right now. <laughs> oh, man, uh, my medicine no, is kicking I, in. Uh, it's, it, sure, I can, for video backups <laughs> and my video production, my workflow is actually pretty easy. Um, 
I mainly, because I don't have a lot of money, uh, so keep that in mind if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of money looking for backups, is that my SSD, I've got like a 500 gig SSD, and that's my project drive, because a lot of my projects aren't that big, because I'm not shooting 4K RAW or something ridiculous. So Feature lengths. I've got a 500... I got a 500 gig SSD that makes it pretty fast to work off of, do renders off of, and everything else. Um, and then I've got, you know, um, I've actually got like two Western Digital one terabytes that are rated together. But that is kind of an archive drive. It's like two terabytes. And every night I've got a piece of software, uh, which whether you're Mac or Windows, there's lots of software like this out there. But uh, every night we'll go ahead and copy any changes to that SSD over to my drive. And so that uh, that goes ahead and makes sure every night that I've got a copy on two physical drives in my house. So if one drive fails, I still have another copy. And then I, I actually use Backblaze because I got a really good deal on it, not necessarily because I think they're the best. Uh, I, I have a Blackblaze account that allows me to go ahead and uh, every night it automatically starts at like 3 a.m. and starts uploading any changes uh, to my archive drive. So therefore... Uh, as long as I don't load it up too fast, every couple of days, that's pretty current and backed up with everything else that's going on. So at the end of the day, I've always got multiple copies in front of me. So if a drive fails, I can continue work immediately. And then I also have a backup option in case the entire thing goes, there's a giant surge or something blows up. Uh, I've got all this stuff in the cloud. And even though it can take a long time and we're talking days. Oh my days, God, really long I can, time. I can pull stuff down. Backblaze, I don't know about how the other ones work, but Backblaze actually will let me just select certain folders and say, okay, send me that as a package. Backblaze will take a couple of days to turn that into a, a downloadable link, uh, but uh, then they'll give you a download client and a download link, and I've used their service before because I did have a RAID failure, and it worked. And so, and I like, too, that I can handpick what I want to get, even though I can't get it immediately. So something to consider if you're looking for these services and stuff like that. It helped me in a pinch before, so... Uh, but yeah, if you're photos, uh, there's lots of great services that are cheap for photos. Now on the video side of things, and actually like my setup's a little extreme. Um, if you look behind me here, uh, that tower right there represents uh, eight four terabyte hard drives in a free <laughs> NAS array with uh, banded uh, dual Ethernet ports, so that I get uh, about a hundred fifty to two hundred megs read write out of it. Then over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got, uh, let me see, yep, right here. This is a Drobo. a Drobo. I just picked that up, actually, and I drive shucked a bunch of uh, four terabyte uh, portable drives that I had laying around and shoved them in there, and now they're all in one convenient single power supply source that I can kind of carry with me. And actually, Drobo does include a really nice little carrying case for this that makes it pretty easy to make it portable. I know in the mm -hmm. past, uh, Drobo's not been the most reliable as far as speed goes and a lot of them the earlier versions only included usb 2.0 even the usb 3 implementations were a little bit iffy uh this particular version which is the latest usb 3 4 bay unit which is really affordable it's like 275 uh mm -hmm. it's providing about 200 um, read writes speeds you know basically the same as my free nas with uh, two ethernet links so sure I can work off of that in a pinch if I have to, but then my main system, I have two one terabyte SSDs that I work off of, uh, which you know, okay, <laughs> that's a that's a really uh, expensive option, guys. Um, it's getting cheaper, yeah. but even the 850 Evos that I'm using right now, uh, they're I want to say they're like 500 bucks a piece. So you know, just in editing drives in my system, I'm talking a thousand dollars, and then four terabyte drives. You know, I think I think I'm paying like one forty five or one fifty for the Reds. So, you know, not bad, but still very First substantial. Off, yeah, but back to the story. What thief is interested in twenty one external drives? They're so freaking cheap. How does how do they plan to turn that around and sell that for any kind of a profit? I don't Especially two if it's ten years of her life, how many of those do you think are like half a terabyte, one fourth of a terabyte, <laughs> like tiny little drives? I just, I find it nuts that somebody would break it and be like, oh, do, see if she's got any external drives. Let's, let's, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, I'm like, grab the TV, grab the computer, but external drives, it just seems like a waste of time. But, oh, well, uh, so my, but uh, your backups are expensive, but are nice and convenient and immediately in front of you. Uh, I would say first people try to look at external backup options because they are cheap. There's monthlies that go for 12, 15, sometimes even less than $10, uh, depending on the service. Go with those first. 
uh, because offsite backup is usually much more important than necessarily um, having backup straight in front of you right away. Uh, a backup in general is necessary, but I would say the first thing to do is try to get uh, meteor proof backup, which is anything that's offsite. Um, <laughs> yeah, because, all mine because are in the same important. room. A fire happens, I lose right. everything. Although fire, I do have insurance, happen, so if a fire damage, happens, like hopefully. Uh, my insurance covers all of my lost footage and so on and pays everybody back for what I'm into them for, for not delivering projects. Sure. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh, man. Okay, moving on. We should probably move this on. Yeah, we've beaten that one like a dead horse. Uh, Moving on down the line to the uh, Paralynx announcement. Uh, If you're not familiar with Paralynx, they were well-known for the Arrow, which was one of the first uh, sort of affordable... Uh, wireless uh, transmitter units for video. Uh, The thing to note about the Paralynx system in general is that they aren't using heavy compression on their transcoding to send footage from one unit to the other. There are things like the, um, I think I've got a link link to this. I believe it's called the uh, Nexus, not Nexus, uh, uh, Nearest, yeah, the Ares, there we go, the Ares unit. and The poor man's wireless video monitor. Yeah, these are only... Uh, $169, but they're, I've tested them out before. They're a bit flaky. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of compression, so you're not probably going to be recording your output from your wireless unit, and the latency is in the 4 to 10 uh, milliseconds range, whereas the Paralynx units claim one second. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is they've actually announced a new version. It's called the Ace. Uh, the Ace is 1300 bucks for the HDMI version, about 1799 for the SDI version. And it, the cool thing is it can run off of either LPE6 batteries or any battery plate that you can strap to it because the voltage range on this is between 7 and 17 volts. So really easy mm-hmm. to build a power source for this. Very sexy little units, very spendy, yeah. but not nearly as spendy as wireless a video used to be. Devin, what do you think about these guys? Sure. No, I, I think that's definitely it. If you're looking for um, doing wireless video and you know you don't want to go with the cheaper... Uh, like we talked about before, Nereus or whatever they're called. Um, this is this seems like a really good system. I haven't used it myself. I have used the cheaper stuff, and the cheaper stuff is annoying because they're USB powered. So, you, like, yes, USB power packs are like cheap and easily widely available now. But the USB plug is not even like that great of a plug. It, you know, it can become unplugged easily. It has no kind of locking mechanism. It doesn't even have a lot of pressure behind it like HDMI does. So. Having a units like this that can actually run off proper, like, well, I don't want to say proper, but like, you know, general video batteries, filmmaking batteries and stuff like that that you'll have around, um, being able to run off of those uh, is is huge for me just for that fact alone without having to develop your own system or, you know, something that runs off of 5 volts uh, USB power. Uh, but also the fact that you can, like, transmit this to four receivers. Now, what's interesting, though, is that I wonder... Um, you know, th- this is like definitely for the pro market uh, or prosumerish market and stuff like that. It's it looks like it's built well. I'd yeah. love to get my hands on one of them, but it's interesting because cameras now, in order to like, because they can't necessarily keep pushing higher resolutions and everything else in dynamic range, because I feel like we kind of hit a ceiling in terms of cost and what we're getting back. Like the jump between 1080p to 4K was so cheap. I'm really surprised, but I don't think the jump from something like 4K to 6K or 8K or something like that is going to be cheap for a very long time. And you by mean a in very the terms time, of I mean a uh, transmitters of is like yeah, are you talking about transmitting 4K footage? Uh, not just like transmitting 4K footage. I'm talking about transmitting in general because what I'm getting to is that cameras now, if you look at like the FS5 and whatnot, they're starting to include Wi-Fi access points that allow people to remotely connect and view the feed via their mobile devices, their iPads, and everything else. That's true, but there's a lot of compression in the stream for that. Uh, if you uh, wanted to send but- these out to like something like a dailies, for example, you could technically set you know three of these up. You have a director's monitor, you have uh, you know a monitor for whoever's hanging out in the back, and then you have one that's going to a recording deck of some kind, and now they can work off of those as proxies until they get the 4K footage or, or whatever. Sure. No, no, no. If a workflow is that big, then it definitely demands something like this, but... I'm still thinking as a as a smaller crew and everything else, usually the producer uh, or the director just kind of wants to see the framing of the shot and see the lighting. They aren't necessarily concerned with getting uncompressed, great-looking video. It depends on what kind of shoot you're on, but I'm talking about a lot smaller crew, run and gun and everything else. 
video cameras are almost starting to include this stuff because they're looking to add features uh, that people will use. And so that's what I've been impressed with is that um, something like the Sony series, anything that has a web browser, whether it's your phone or a laptop or an iPad, can look at a very compressed image, but still they can kind of look at it and watch it. You won't pull focus on it or anything like that, but it's just one of those things where most of the time when I need a, a monitor that's wireless, it's just because I want to move the camera around and I need to set up a monitor for um, the producer or, you know, who who's ever managing the project. And whoever's managing the project doesn't necessarily care about getting the highest fidelity. They just want to make sure that they're getting everything that they they want to get from that shoot. So, you know, it's totally different. You're right, especially for recording proxies or something like that. Have it at the DIT station. I get all that stuff. But I'm saying that the cheaper end solution of these that I used to, like, always want to get and put on my camera and everything else, I almost see them possibly going away where even DSLRs are now having Wi-Fi options to, at you know, kind of remotely view what you're shooting. I mean, the, it's not perfect yet. It's yeah, got a long way to go. The but. problem is with Wi-Fi and it's latency, basically, because, uh, you know, by the yeah. time you transcode the footage into something else and then you send it off to a Wi-Fi router, it gets sent back as packets to whatever device you're using that's logged mm -hmm. into that. You're adding like 30 to, to 40 milliseconds of delay. And it, I mean, it's to the point where someone turns their head on set and then you watch your footage and your footage, sure. now he's <laughs> turning his head on set and it's, it's pretty obnoxious. Right, right. I get that. I get that. But to me... Uh, timing isn't important in a lot of situations where you want remote monitoring. In some situations, it is really important, and, and you're completely right, especially like if you're flying a drone or something like that. There's lots of reasons why latency would become a big deal. But even if I was directing a project, and I was, but I wasn't the DP, uh, if I'm in the same room and I'm I, I'm not like in the back of a truck or something like that, if we're you know trying to monitor something on the road or remotely or something like that, I, I just want to make sure the framing's good that you know I have the kind of shot I'm looking for, and that's all I care about. I don't necessarily care about seeing like real time high quality and all that kind of stuff like a focus puller would. A focus puller needs to see all that detail and they need to see it in an instant. But I'm just like, I don't see where I would use it unless I was pulling focus or in a situation like that where I need that real time. Yeah, see, anymore to me, like, I haven't, I used to run into situations all the time where someone was like, I want to see what you see and I want to see it over here and I want mm -hmm. it to be right. wherever I want to be. And that happened quite a bit. But anymore, you know, I put up a, a single monitor that everybody can kind of walk over and look at if they'd like. And a lot of times, you know, if you're shooting something where people are, are doing that, it, I have my camera on a tripod. I run a cable over for them and plug it in, no problem. Sure. I, I used to try wireless solutions, but then I was like, well, wait a minute. It's silly to put in a, a wireless implementation when really I'm not, you know, pulling focus with this. I'm not doing anything, you know, crazy where I'm moving the camera around. Uh, You're not steady camming it. Exactly. <laughs> and if I'm going to do a steady cam with a follow focus, I'm going to have two operators. I'm going to have the steady cam operator and I'm going to have the focus puller and he's going to have a nice wireless solution that enables him to see exactly what's going on and follow focus. You know, that's when you need it. And for a lot of people, that's sort of a rental application as opposed to an owning application, unless yeah. you really need a wireless monitor. Now, there are a few solutions that I've come across that it would have been nice, like you get your camera set up on a crane, and you're like, okay, I got the camera all set up, and then you forget to run a cable down for a monitor, <laughs> and you slap yourself in the forehead and realize, wait a minute, what am I doing here? But, uh, you know, even that, like, once you get the cable set up and you're good to go, you don't have to worry about it. If you're transitioning between a lot of different mounts and stuff like that, you know, I, I don't know. I still think one millisecond delay is really sexy. Uh, that would almost be worth $1,300 <laughs> if I could justify it. I don't know. Even for me, five milliseconds is fine. I, I know a lot of people like are trying to get down to that one. Um, I've, I've worked on systems that have five milliseconds of delay and everything else, and five milliseconds is not a lot. Uh, you know, I've sat here and like tried playing on gaming monitors that are one millisecond versus like ten or fifteen millisecond, um, and it, it's one of those where. Uh, it's to me, as long as it's like less than 25, I barely even notice it and I'm really fine with it. But, uh, it, it is sexy to see that and it's sexy to see that they're using, uh, more widely available batteries rather than rigging up your own solution. Uh, and, and to, in general, I've loved their stuff in the past. And I think this price point makes it really great for people who need that in their workflow. But like I said, I don't necessarily need my workflow, and most times I would actually be super happy to have a camera that just has Wi-Fi, and people can just connect with their own devices, because most of the time people have it, their own device to, you know, run around and sit wherever they want or whatever and look at the shot, and most of the time 
They just want to make sure it looks good. They they aren't going to watch it right then and there because they're in the same room. They just want to make sure it looks good. So I've actually caught for, a couple of guys that continue to get repeat clients from certain customers, and it's because they hand out iPads for free yeah. to everybody that shows up. And they're like, here, log into our media server, and you can watch what's going on. Do you know what, do you know what system they use for that? Um, I... I want to say there was a black magic setup they had, and they were just rebroadcasting. But um, I'm not 100% sure. The one sure. guy, he actually had it built into his camera. Um, I, I can't. I, you know what? My brain is not working good today. <laughs> That's quite but, all right. But uh, if you look at some of the specs on like uh, the newer cameras, like the LG 300 from uh, JVC, the uh, FS5, those have built-in Wi-Fi uh, media hubs internally, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe Blackmagic sells several Ethernet versions of the same thing where you can just basically plug HDMI into to an Ethernet port, send it off to wherever, and then it goes to your Wi-Fi hub and you can distribute it out. Um, some people actually just give you a web page address and then you type in an IP address at your device and that's how you bring up the video stream. Sure, yeah. uh, Lots of different ways to do it. But the the point I was actually getting at is less about the tech because I don't actually <laughs> know how he's doing it, but more that he was buying his clients off with sure. these iPads, and I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, that's that, that's something, you're right, that's something we don't think about, but if you shoot a lot of corporate video and stuff like that, the client experience uh, can sometimes be just as important as the footage you capture. Uh, in general, I mean, if you're a really you know fun person to work with and stuff like that, and you jive well with clients, that's always a big positive, and that you know can really help to mean repeat business, along with having good quality video. Uh, but even if you make the best video in the world, if you're difficult to work with and difficult to get a hold of and stuff like that, uh, people will go to other places to get their videos done. Uh, so if you're part of the corporate scene and stuff like that, you're right. People will do little things here and there to make sure their clients have a very premium experience with them. And and it, it can lead to more business, whether it deserves it or not. Now, moving on down the line to stuff that's less client-based and more camera-based, <laughs> uh, I've got the... Well, we actually talked about it. This this is the Miticon uh, 0.95, 25-millimeter. Yeah. Uh, okay, let me start over because, man, <laughs> my cold medicine is working good on me. Uh, this is yep. the Miticon 25-millimeter F0.95 lens, and it's sitting next to the Panasonic 25-millimeter F1.4. Now, the F1.4 is significantly larger Devin, you and I were kind of talking about this in the previous cast, that this lens mm-hmm. looked like it was a little slim. It turns out it's very slim. It's in fact, very you know, tiny. they've really, really scaled this down. I can't believe that it's smaller than the 25mm f1.4. Uh, what do you think? This, this speed does that make it more attractive? This, well, it's, I mean, it'll probably Or does it make like it more plastic? It'll probably weigh like a good, you know, two pounds or something like that, as most of these metal lenses do. But um, the Speedmaster, it it is a tiny lens for only like, you know, for f0.95. This is the smallest I've seen it because both the SLR Magic that we've been talking about comparing it to um, and your... uh, uh, Oh, the uh, Voigtlander 25mm f0.95? yeah. Those are both kind of roughly the same size lenses. They're pretty long for 25 millimeter on such a small sensor size. Um, So it is interesting to see this thing so small. Um, But it's one of those two that, uh, all things considered, I'm not totally thrilled with some of the shots I'm seeing. Um, Some of the bokeh just doesn't feel as good as, uh, you know, my SLR Magic does. Um, it doesn't look like it has maybe as much flaring issues as mine does, but is that uh, a plastic mocha, mount I'm seeing right there? I couldn't tell you. It kind of looks like it, but <laughs> I can't wow. be sure. Um, so it's I, it, the size does make it interesting, especially too if you've got what were they showing it with a Lumex? Uh, is that a uh, what's it? A GX7? Yeah, it looks yeah. like a GX7. Um, yeah, if you've got something like that, this is a sexy lens to put on it because it, you know, it looks like an old Lumex camera. I, I like the aesthetics of it, but the you're right, um, the bokeh does look a little ugly yeah, there. It's sort of like you, smeared you, you won't around. You will be able to see it in the stream. Check the show notes to get um, a link to all the promo shots and stuff like that. But the bokeh isn't smooth. It looks like almost. It's hard to describe, but it's a kind of bokeh of a that smear. looks like multiple images. Yeah, it's a bit of a smear. Um, it's not a smooth transition between, um, 
uh, what's what's where I'm looking for between like an edge and a non-edge, if that makes sense. Uh, so it ends up looking like almost like when you use LED lighting, and you've got a bunch of tiny little shadows. That's kind of what the bokeh looks like. It looks like a bunch of tiny little shadows. Um, so I'm not totally thrilled with that, but understand too, I, um, uh, if you close it down a little bit, the bokeh does clean up a little bit. So yeah, though you do get less depth of field, but that's part of the reason why you pay for it. I, I think that it's going to come with its own disadvantages based on the shots I'm seeing here. I'm still happy with my SLR magic. Uh, even though I get a little bit of lens flaring, I think the bokeh is way smoother on it. And even though it is pretty soft, at uh, 0 0.95 this lens on the other hand does look really sharp at 0 0.95 yeah it a little does. bit sharper than mine does well center so, sharpness anyway the corners are a little bit soft now yeah. we're not neither one of us are super picky on our lenses we don't we're dig not pixel deep peepers. into that but uh <laughs> in general any of these lenses at f 0 0.95 they're going to be soft in the corners guys yeah you know, that's just the it, physics of of lens optics you know you, you can't get past that There's, yeah and it's that's part of the reason why when you see uh, Canon lenses and they're, you know, like uh, 2.8 or what's it? The, the Canon 50 millimeter 1.2 is a monster of a lens. And part of the reason for that, don't tell me DJ has Yeah, I have part one. I was just <laughs> looking to see if I could get to it in time for you to finish talking. Sure. Uh, but the, the 50 millimeter 1.2 is uh, so large. And part of the reason for that is the fact that it can, you know, kind of use more of the center of the lens. Uh, part of it is so that, you know, it's uh, it, it has, uh, you know, elements. It, it's just one of those that the faster you want the lens, the bigger your opening is going to need to be. And not just like, oh, it's a little bigger than my sensor size. Like, we're talking way bigger than the sensor size. So DJ's showing off his 51.2 right now. Yeah, this is a 51.2 wide open. And you can see the massive opening on the back of this guy. It's huge. And compare this to a 50 0 0.95, but this does have full-frame coverage, so they do really have right. to make a massive piece of glass. This thing is but, ultra heavy, too. But part of the reason why it's massive is not just the full-frame size, but it's in order to get that speed while also getting the quality in the corners. So, like he's saying, it's just it's kind of physics, and no one's going to put you know, uh, something that's like a 72 or an 88 millimeter uh, filter size lens on their little micro four thirds camera, because then it's not even going to fit on the tripod because the lens is going to outgrow the camera uh, in order to get, you know, great sharpness in the corners at, you know, F 0.95. So uh, it's one of those where this is an acceptable fact of lenses of this size that are so small, so light, and then are this fast is you're just going to have to take a few breaks with them. And most of the time I'm completely fine with that. I understand it. You know it and you work around it. And I'll take the advantage of it being, you know, more portable or being super fast on my micro four thirds. Well, and really, um, Devin, think about it. When you're using the 0 0.95 on your Voigtlander, your SLR Magic, or this mm -hmm. Miticon, you know, you're doing that for sort of a stylized approach to that particular shot. Because otherwise, you know, you're not going to crank down that that uh, that wide open. Usually, no. you're going to go in something that would give you an f5.6, f4 range. So f2.8 on a micro four thirds lens roughly well, would and, get you about that range. And, and as much as people love shallow depth of field and everything else, and Gets I overused. may stand in the minority here, um, I really, I don't use super, super shallow depth of field where the entire background is just a blur. Um, cause I feel like it does the opposite. You actually start losing depth because even though people feel like, oh, it's narrowed up the field. So it really stands out from the background. If the entire background just looks like some kind of like colored mosaic painting, uh, you lose that sense of depth as opposed to if you have leading lines and other compositional elements that help to build that depth. So I don't always, so I rarely even shoot wide open with that lens. Uh, though if I am in low light, I'll maybe do 1.2 cause my SLR magic is pretty damn sharp at 1.2. So I'll kind of sit around that area, maybe 1.4, and I rarely open it all the way up unless you're saying, like, yeah, a super stylized thing Honestly, or a situation where... Honestly, I only use my Voigtlander wide open. Like, I have the <laughs> yeah. Panasonic 25mm f1.4. If I'm shooting anything else, I'll shoot on that. If I want mm -hmm. wide open, I grab my Voigtlander because it's a heavy lens and honestly yeah. the value of a micro four thirds is traveling light. Now I work with a True. director on a regular basis and he always makes me go as deep focus as possible. And his theory is that I'm, I'm basically <laughs> sort of um, oppressing the viewer by forcing them to only look 
at the things that I have in focus and basically not giving them the option to look at anything else. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this, but the guy pays the bills, so <laughs> I do what he says you know, when I'm what? shooting with him. You know what? You're going to hate me for this. I kind of agree with him, too. To some point, it all has to serve the purpose of the story. Uh, Rocket Jump today or yesterday, Rocket Jump Film School came out with a pretty good video on editing. And I know it sounds weird that we're talking about depth of field and I bring up editing, but it's the same thing when it comes to putting moving images together is that uh, choosing to go with a wide shot and then when something important happens that you want laser focus of the audience, you choose to a narrow shot uh, is the same thing as if you're choosing shallow depth of field or you're choosing large depth of field is you're telling the audience where to do the looking at and stuff like that. And so if you do a bunch of stuff shallow depth of field, um, first off, like that, that's a way to shoot stuff. You are allowed to shoot that way. So I'm not saying that's a bad way to do things, but uh, you, sometimes too, you can bore the audience. You may have a great vista of New York City and seeing down the streets and everything else and all this depth in the image. And when you do shallow depth of field, you've just made the background boring. Uh, you just made it moving colors. So, but it, it, if that serves the storytelling, if you want to show somebody who's isolated in this bustling city and everything else, shallow depth of field can certainly do that for you. So, uh, it, it's all important things to keep in mind. It's just usually good to uh, mix it up if you're like trying to learn and figure out what's your groove and what you like and stuff like that. Is try different things. Shooting wide open all the time. Uh, well, you partially get into that habit because it looks so good on a 5d yeah i've worked with other people that are just like strap it <laughs> as wide open as it'll go and don't do anything else i want everything to be shallow depth of field period go yeah one of and that's one of the selling points for the c300 i i saw some people reviewing the c300 and they made it a point that they're like look we're out here in the middle of the night and look at how high we can turn up the ISO and it looks clean. And they're like, the reason why we would do that is because here we have a handheld shot of a dude walking back and forth and trying to shoot at f1.2. We can't keep the guy in focus because it's so narrow on that camera that you can't do anything. But here we can crank up the ISO. We can close it down to maybe 2.8 or 3.2. And now the focus puller has a much easier time keeping him in focus. Uh, but you know, that's part of style too. Maybe you want the character to go in and out of focus to have like a nauseating or a jarring feeling or something like that. Like you, you know, d aren't connected with this character. So it all depends on how you want to shoot it and how you want to do it. But, uh, th these are all things to consider when, uh, you shoot is, you know, try different things and do it different ways. So partially I agree with your director friend of yours. I, but not that like, that's a rule where I'm like, I, I work with him all the time way. and we always get into this argument because <laughs> I like high frame rates and he likes yeah. deep focus and i'm like you know we should just shoot soap operas because that would be right? perfect you know <laughs> there you go man that's 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 the marriage right there yeah that's, a, that's the worst it's like the high worst look ever high but, frame rates and uh three camera shooting yeah yeah uh okay um i need to get out of here because i'm my medication yes. is kicking in i am i i don't know what my wife gave me but it's you know in my brain now uh so Devin, where can people find you man uh, they can actually now find me on Twitter. Uh, you can search Devin Hanson. Wait, what? What's your, new, what's your new Twitter <laughs> That's handle? what I was saying before you interrupted me, DJ. Oh, man. Is that, uh, yeah, I made a new Twitter handle called DevoCut because the old one needed to go. Uh, <laughs> it needed to be taken outside and shot. So that's what I did with it. Um, so you can find me at DevoCut where I'm going to be a lot more active. Um, I mean, if any of you want to ask me a question, you can. I don't know why you would. Uh, especially with his Twitter over there, but send all uh, your questions to Devin from now on, guys. Like I'm <laughs> done with them. Devin gets all the questions; they'll be answered in the order he receives them. Uh, but um, uh, on Twitter, it's it's mostly uh, just going to be me posting short films, maybe tutorials and stuff like that, uh, as well as maybe do some stuff with Instagram because uh, I feel like that's the thing to do now is go on Instagram and take pictures of your rig while you're shooting something. I feel like that's what they all do. If you follow anybody on Instagram that's a filmmaker, that's all they do is sit there and like, hey, this is what we're shooting today. And they just upload a picture of that, of their rig. And it's just like you, you scroll through their list and it's just like, Rig shot, you know, rig shot, rig shot. Just rig shot, rig shot, rig shot. And I'm like, you said you're a photographer? And <laughs> you have one subject you photog you take photos of and it's your rig. But yeah, so feel free to follow me, add me. I'll be adding lots of cool content. I'm not just going to make it a place where I rant about uh, Canon or something like that. So, also look forward to more reviews from Devin showing up on DSLRFilmNoob.com as well as the YouTube channel. Yeah. I, in fact, um, I was 
forgetful and forgot to post one that Devin sent me this morning, so that should be going up this evening or tomorrow morning, depending on... Well, I, I sent it to you days ago, but it wasn't good enough for you, so I had to redo it. Yeah, sorry about that, man. <laughs> My pickiness. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are distributed, SoundCloud, iTunes, and so on. Check out the links below for show notes and anything else that's related to this show. You can also swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com for the latest updates from Devin and I, and find us both on Twitter. I'm at DSLRFilmNoob, and Devin, you are at Devo cut. I'm going to remember that one of these days. On that note, guys, we'll <laughs> see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs> oh, you almost made it. You almost got through it. <laughs>